Okay, so um, unfortunately we're still uh, in a state of war. Be'ezras Hashem, it should be over uh, very, very soon. Although I will tell you, I, I don't know if I mentioned, I, I saw a very interesting wall poster. You know, in Yerushalayim, there's all sorts of wall posters. And someone had a quote. This, it may, this may sound very bizarre to you, but there was some point to it. From the Chassam Sofer, who was one of the great, great uh, Gedolim. And he said that when the milchamos that one is going through is part of the messianic process of Gog and Magog, you don't necessarily pray that it should end as soon as possible because that may truncate, that may cut short the process that's necessary for Geula. So you pray for Mashiach, that's what you pray for. You pray for Mashiach, but you don't, in other words, you don't directly pray the war should be cut short because maybe that would interrupt the messianic process. But since Hashem could bring the Geula in many, many different ways, so you pray that the Geula come as soon as, as soon as it's possible to come. It's a very interesting perspective. I think it's counterintuitive to a lot of people, but this is what the, uh, the wall poster had a big quotation from the Chassam Sofer. Uh, but uh, be it as it may, uh, we're still continuing our discussion of the laws of war, the laws of Milchama. Uh, this, I think, is the third uh, class we have in this. And basically, uh, what we've said so far, just to summarize it in three sentences or four sentences, is that uh, we have uh, two categories of war. One is called optional wars of expansion, which are not possible today. We don't do those at all. Uh, but the second category are mitzvah wars, called milchemes mitzvah. And mitzvah wars, the Rambam says there are three types. There is the war against Amalek. There is the war to eradicate the seven nations that inhabited Canaan. Uh, and then there is the war to defend the Jewish people from an enemy that is attacking them and wants to destroy them. So of those three categories of mitzvah war, we don't have two of those three. We don't know who Amalek is today, and the seven nations of Canaan are extinct. So the only type of war that halacha would legitimate today is what is called the war to defend the Jewish people from attack. In other words, um, we don't have milchames rishus at all, and of milchames mitzvah, of the three types that the Rambam enumerates, we only have one of the three types, and that's called Lahoshia Yisrael Yadzor, to protect or defend the Jewish people from an enemy that attacks the Jewish people. Now, you will recall that I did mention that according to Ramban, there is another category of Milchames Mitzvah, and that's a war to conquer territory within the boundaries of the land of Israel. Uh, but the Rambam does not count that because the Rambam does not consider that to be an obligation on us today. Now, the second point, so that's the first thing. We categorized, and I'm going to go over this in a different way in a few minutes, but we, ca- we characterized the present struggle against Hamas to fall under the category of a mitzvah war because Hamas is an enemy that is pledged, really, to the destruction of Jews. By the way, I don't know if, uh, I'm sure you are following this, uh, the rise of anti-Semitism in the United States and in American universities is an absolute disgrace. Again, I'm not sure I would call it necessarily physically dangerous, but uh, you know, I myself, I am a graduate of Harvard Law School, so to see uh, what is going on in, in Harvard is absolutely disgusting. It is disgusting. Uh, because, and the reason is, 
because um, although some graduates of Harvard Law School teach in my note, but, but others do have become president of the United States or become Supreme Court. I, mean, I, I have the more important job, it's true, uh, but some will become president of the United States or be on the Supreme Court. So you're talking about people who are the leaders, going to be the leaders of American society. And especially one of those guys is on the law review. Now, I don't know if you know law schools, but law review is the best students within that university's system. And uh, not only was he involved in demonstrating, but I think he physically uh, physically engaged in some violent behavior. So that's the guy that in 20 years may be president of the United States. Again, I mean, Griffith and Mashiach will be here before that. So it's mamish, mamish a disgrace. So people say uh, America is, you know, people say Israel is dangerous. Uh, you know, if you want to be safe, come to Eretz Israel and get away from uh, what is going on in the rest of the world. The world is dangerous. So Eretz Israel is dangerous like the rest of the world, but here you have sechus, here you have merit, here you have kedusha, here you have divine protection. So when people talk about how dangerous Israel is, it really rings hollow when you read about what is going on uh, in the rest of the world, America and yeah, certainly uh, Europe and the like. But okay, uh, but, but be, it, be it as it may, Hamas certainly uh, is pledged to the destruction of uh, Jews, and therefore, it's Muhammad's Mitzvah. Now, you'll recall that last week we were discussing the exemptions from war. Who is exempt from war? And without going over everything, generally speaking, in Milchemes Mitzvah, there are much fewer exemptions than Milchemes Rishutz. Uh, and we even discussed the possibility that maybe even people who are learning Torah uh, would be obligated to fight a Milchemes Mitzvah. And, and the like. Um, okay, so again, I don't want to go over everything there. I just want to make a, a few few points. Um, I had mentioned, and you, you undoubtedly know this anyway, that uh, Jews that are associated or are called Haredim. Haredim are translated ultra-Orthodox or people who are very, very devout. Uh, and that could either be Hasidim or non-Hasidim. Generally do not serve in the military. Now, generally, uh, there are many, many exceptions, but, but generally, uh, Haredim do not serve in the uh, military. And there are two different grounds for why they claim not to serve in the military. Ground number one is, if they are full-time students of Torah learning, if their main occupation is to study Torah full-time, so the claim is there is an exemption for one who learns Torah full-time. That is one idea. Now, if you remember, the question I raised was, what is the source of that exemption? Where does it say that full-time students of the Torah are exempt from military service, especially if it's a milchames mitzvah? Milchames mitzvah. So again, forgive me for reviewing a little bit. So I told you that the main source of the exemption was a passage in the Rambam in Hilchos Shemitah V'Yovel. It's interesting. It's, about, it's the end of the laws of Shemitah, although this has nothing to do with Shemitah. And the Rambam discusses at the end of Shemitah V'Yovel, the Rambam discusses the special role of the tribe of Levi. And the tribe of Levi was the only one of the tribes that was not given a share of land in Eretz Yisrael. And the tribe of Levi, and that includes Kohanim and Levim, 
they were supported by the congregation, by the, by the public, in terms of truma and maser, tithing and the like, because their job was to be fully devoted to the learning of Torah, the teaching of Torah, uh, creating the spiritual backbone of Am Yisrael, and therefore God did not want them to be involved in business or in uh, property ownership, that they should be panoi, they should be free for Avodah Sashem. So all of that is very clear, but then the Rambam adds the following line, and therefore Shevet Levi was exempt from military service. Now that's not so clear in the Chumash, but the Rambam understands that Shevet Levi as a whole was exempt from military service because they were involved in the teaching of Torah. Now, the implication of the Rambam is, although it's not explicit, that Shevet Levi is exempt not only from optional wars, but even from mitzvah wars, because the Rambam seems to say Shevet Levi is exempt legamri. Now, you may say, okay, so what? That only applies to Shevet Levi. If I'm not a Levi, where's my exemption? So that's based on another paragraph of the Rambam, where the Rambam says that it is not only Shevet Levi that has this exalted status, but any person who truly devotes himself to the service of Hashem with all of his heart will kind of become an honorary Levi. So putting those two together, the military exemption of Shevet Levi and the ability of another, you know, any person to become Shevet Levi, that constructs, so it is said, I'm not here, I'm not poskening on them, just telling you what the position is. So it is said that that creates an exemption for full-time Torah students. The question becomes, uh, what is the definition of a full-time Torah student? Is every person in the yeshiva considered to be, yeah, technically they're full-time, but are they learning full-time or are they you know, doing other things? Uh, meaning it's one thing to say the person who is learning you know, 18 hours a day, you know, et cetera, uh, but most are not that way. So that's, that's one question. Uh, now, keep in mind at most that is an exemption for the full-time Torah scholar. Now what about the Haredi Jew who is religious but they're not a full-time Torah scholar. They, 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 they go to work or they have a business or whatever it is. What basis are they exempt? So here there's a second argument that's made. And the argument that's made is that the army is uh, not a religious environment or it's even an anti-religious environment. And there's a great, great danger that a religious person may become less committed to the Torah as a result of military service. Now, in truth, if you, if you examine this empirically, the answer is sometimes it does happen and sometimes it doesn't happen, meaning to say there, there are, first of all, non-religious soldiers who become religious in the army, especially now. Uh, second of all, there are religious soldiers who remain very religious and even grow. But it is true, it is true. We can't deny the phenomenon that... Um, life in the army can, in, in some cases, maybe in many cases, adversely affect a person's religious standing. So a person may be less careful about Shabbat, less careful about kosher, uh, etc. So as a result, the Haredi world claims what you might call, this sounds a little pejorative, I don't mean it to be pejorative, a, um, a life cycle exemption, meaning to say army life is not consistent with the values 
that we want to give our children. And parents are very, very worried about this. Now, I absolutely understand the worry. I understand the worry. I, besides, of course, the worry for your kid's life. That's one thing. But, besides, but that's, that, that every parent shares. But the unique concerns that I don't want my child to be in an environment that could be very, very anti-religious in some ways. That's a very legitimate concern. My question is, though, where in halacha do you see that as an exemption from milchamet mitzvah? Meaning, milchamet mitzvah has a norm that everybody's supposed to go. So you're saying, right? Except for, let's say, a chasa in the first year we talked about, there are a few limited things. So every exemption from milchamet mitzvah has to be rooted in a halachic category. So I mentioned that the full-time Torah scholar can at least, uh, uh, can at least hold on to the exemption of Shevet Levi. Okay, that, that's from the Rambam. But what is the exemption? I don't have to go to military service because it's a non-religious environment. And remember, the army does give him kashras and you know, the, the ability to keep the mitzvahs are there, but the environment is not so great. So again, I'm going to throw this out as a question to think about, meaning on one hand, I absolutely understand the concern of parents that the army is not a good environment for their child. I absolutely understand that. But how is that a heter? What, what, what is the basis of the heter when you have an enemy like, like Hamas? All right. Now, with women, we mentioned there were special issues of tzniyos and immorality, and God forbid if a woman is taken as a prisoner of war, uh, even worse things can happen. And um, I, I went over last week some of the history of what is called giyus habanot, that means drafting of, of women. Ben-Gurion initially was very much in favor of this, and the great gedolim of the time, going back, this goes back to the early 1950s, actually issued a proclamation that for women to be drafted into the army uh, could lead to sexual misbehaviors and a person must give their life before they transgress. Giloy arayot, right, sexual. And this was considered to be giloy arayos, And they actually said both a woman and her parents would have to give their lives before there would be compulsory uh, draft. Uh, and eventually what happened is that women indeed are not subject uh, to compulsory draft, they could claim an exemption based on religion uh, that, is, that is available. Uh, and then the last thing we mentioned was Sheirut Lumi. Sheirut Lumi is national service uh, outside of the army, like working in hospitals or teaching in, in schools. And uh, many uh, women in the Dati Lumi community who would not serve in the army for religious reasons will do Sheirut Lumi. And yet I had mentioned that within the Haredi world, the Gedolim were not only against women serving in the army, but they were even against women having Sheirut Lumi. And that was a little difficult, but the way the Chazonish expressed it was that even if the initial Sheirut Lumi is innocuous, you're working in a hospital, but once you're submitting to a government program where the government can assign you and the government sets the conditions, then in a sense you're in a trap. See, it's not like a private job. If a woman has a job in a hospital and it turns out they're asking her to do non-Saniyas things, so she could quit. But once you're in the Sherut Lumi program, you know, you're, you're bound. So because of this, 
Chazanish at least, and, and other Gedolim too, was even against Shevet Lumi, but in the uh, religious Zionist world, Shevet Lumi is considered to be uh, relatively acceptable. Okay, so again, I'm here more as a journalist uh, and a reporter, not, uh, I'm not here to in any particular Shilas. If any of you want to go to the army or Shevet Lumi or anything like that, uh, you should talk, uh, well, you can talk to me, you can ask me a Shiloh too, but you can talk to whichever Rav you ask your, your Shilas too. Because uh, I'm, I'm not uh, giving final decisions in the class. I'm just just reporting what the different the different issues uh, different issues are. Now, what I want to present to you now, though, is a whole other way of analyzing the whole phenomenon. Meaning, everything we've been talking about is making an assumption that this is a halachic war. In other words, a war legitimated by halacha and it falls under the category of milchemes mitzvah, and therefore everybody has to participate unless we can find specific exemptions. An argument has been made that this is not a halachically valid war at all, even though, it, even though it's certainly a war of defense, but it's not a halachically valid war at all, although that, that doesn't mean quite what it sounds like. And let me explain what the basis of this is. The Rambam says that a Mohammed Rishus, an optional war, which we're not talking about, requires three preconditions. You have to have a king, approval of the king, as the king orders it. No, Mohammed Rishus, I'm, I'm, I'm going back, I'm going to compare. Mohammed Rishus has three conditions. The, the, the king must authorize it. Number two, the Sanhedrin of 71 must approve it. And number three, the prophetic breastplate of the Kohen Gadol, called the Urim Betumim, must be consulted, meaning Hashem, through prophecy, must give a yes. Now, Milchemes Mitzvah, you clearly do not need Sanhedrin, and you clearly do not need Urim Betumim. Okay, that's clear. But the question is, Maybe you need a melech, which we don't have today. Now, where would I get this from? We get this from a note, a short note, in the Sefer HaMitzvos. When the Rambam has the Sefer HaMitzvos, so you know, the Sefer HaMitzvos is divided into, uh, some of you might learn it every day, I'm not sure, you know, it's part of the Chabad Rambam calendar, you know, if you do... Uh, Three chapters a day of the Mishnah Torah, which is mamish impossible. Uh, you finish the whole Rambam in a year. Uh, if you do one chapter uh, a day, you finish the Rambam in three years. But then there's a much shorter work called the Sefer HaMitzvot that uh, you can do a mitzvah and that, that you can do in a much, much lesser time. Now the Sefer HaMitzvot is divided into three parts. If you ever looked at a Sefer HaMitzvot. The first part, which is actually the most interesting, but it's the most theoretical. The Rambam lays down 14 rules to determine how to count mitzvahs. And let me just explain a little background just to familiarize you with the Sefer HaMitzvahs, although it's a digression. We have this rabbinic tradition that there are 613 mitzvahs in the Torah. And that's further subdivided into 365 negative commandments and 248 
positive commandments. There are 365 uh, situations where the Torah says, thou shalt not do something. And there are 248 situations where the Torah says, you shall do something. And Chazal say that the 248 corresponds to your bones. Each positive mitzvah gives spiritual life to your bones. And the 365 applies to your sinews and ligaments. Every time you transgress, it spiritually affects your ligaments or, or whatever. Now, the problem is, though, Chazal gave us a number, but Chazal did not give us a list. There is no list in the Talmud or the Midrash of the 613 mitzvahs. So here's the problem. If I simply go through the Torah and write down every time God said to do something, do this, do this, do this, or don't do this, don't do this, I'm going to get a lot more than 613 statements. I'm going to get something like 5,000 statements. So how do you count mitzvahs? Meaning, how do you count? What, what are the rules that determine how you count the mitzvahs? It's not, it's not a simple thing. And in fact, there are a lot of disagreements as to how you count the mitzvahs. So the Rambam was the first one. He was not the first one who made lists. Even before the Rambam, there were commentaries who made lists. But the Rambam was the first one who tried to make a science out of it. He tried to articulate the rules that governed him that before he enumerates, he would tell you what he includes, what he doesn't include. So for example, just to give you examples, the Rambam says, when you have a lot of steps in a process, we count it as one mitzvah. A korban is a very good example. The Torah says when you commit a certain sin, you have to bring a sin offering. Now if you look, when the Torah describes a sin offering, it says, oh, you shall slaughter, and you should put your hands on it, and you should burn the fats, and you should sprinkle the blood. Well, do you count that as separate mitzvahs? Oh, there's a mitzvah to slaughter. There's a mitzvah to put my hands and confess. The answer is no. There's one mitzvah called bringing a sin offering, which comprises steps A through Z. See, that way he shrinks the number of commandments. Otherwise, you'd have gazillions of commandments. Or Shabbos. Now, there are 39 things you're not allowed to do on Shabbos. Do I count, thou shalt not harvest, thou shalt not plow, thou shalt not write, thou shalt not cook. Well, if you start counting that, that already, gives you, that already takes up 39. Rambam says, no, there's one commandment called, do not do forbidden work on Shabbos. It happens to be, there are 39 examples. You know, you, you, I hope you see the general idea. There's the Rambam is trying to develop criteria for how you count mitzvahs, how you don't. Another rule that the Rambam says is that there are many commandments that were only temporary in nature and they're not counted. For example, God commanded Moshe that when people get mun, you know, the mun, they are not allowed to leave it over until the next morning. So, is that one of the 613 commandments? Do not leave your mun to the next day. The answer is no. Was it a commandment of Hashem? It is. But the 613 only applies to the permanent commandments that always apply. It does not apply to the commandments that are of temporary duration. 
And these are very, some of them are very theoretical rules. They're hard to understand. And there's, there are many, many commentaries on these rules. So for the Talmud Chacham, the first part of the Sefer and Mitzvot is the most interesting, where the Rambam develops these rules. Okay, now, after he gives you the 14 rules, he then enumerates, the, briefly, the 248 positives, and afterwards, he enumerates the 365 negatives. So that's what I mean when I say the Sefer HaMitzvos is a book in three parts. Part one are what are called the Yud Dalit Shirashim, the 14 root principles that guided the Rambam in counting the mitzvos. Part two is a listing of mitzvos asay, 248, with brief explanations. Now again, he does not discuss rabbinic law. See, in the Mishnah Torah, he goes over all of the halachas. Here he's just giving you a brief description. And part three is the mitzvos losasa. Okay, now, after the Rambam finishes the shrashim, and he's about to start enumerating the positive mitzvos, he gives you certain notes, and he says, you should know that certain commandments only apply when there's a Beis HaMikdash, and, and, and a melech, and I'm not going to repeat this every time. So even if you don't see it later, it says, and he mentions, among these are commandments that require a king, such as milchemes mitzvah or milchemes rishus. Wow. Now, that's a very, very interesting statement that actually says that even a milchemes mitzvah, you don't need the Sanhedrin, that's true. And you don't need the Urim Betumim, that's true. But the Rambam seems to say, you need a king. Melech. There is no Melech today. So that would mean, according to the Rambam, there is no such category, even today, or, or today, uh, called Nochemes Mitzvah. So what's Gogurada? What's the what? Gogurada. Yeah, um, I'll, I'll, I'll come back. I'll come back to that. Now, now, now. Ramban, however, seems to say that the word melech is lavdafka, and with respect to the laws of war, the role of melech can be taken over by a shofet, by a judge, or by any form of government that society has considered to be representative of it. And therefore, according to Ramban, uh, a Mohammed mitzvah could exist today because you don't, need a, you don't need the official melech. You just need the government to authorize it. So that's a huge machlokas uh, that according to the Rambam, you seem to need a melech even for Mohammed's mitzvah. According to Ramban, the government, as it were, can take the place of melech. I say again? Any type of government? Well, it would have to be, well, okay, so you're right. The questions get very complicated, but he's referring to a Jewish government. A Jewish government. A Jewish government or a government elected or appointed or set up by the Jewish people uh, has the koach of a melech. And uh, the great Rav Cook, who was the first 
chief rabbi, not of the state of Israel. He died before the state of Israel, but uh, he, he was the first person who had the position of chief rabbi of what was called Palestine under the British mandate. A uh, controversial person even today, but a great, great godot, uh, wrote at length with the idea that a Jewish government has the halachic authority of Melech in order to wage Milchemes Mitzvah. Now, this wouldn't help for Milchemes Rishos because you're still missing Sanhedrin and Urim Vitumim. That's not negotiable. But for Milchemes Mitzvah, where the only thing you need is Melech, so Rav Kook made the argument that a government would be Melech. Now, I want to focus, though, on the implication of the Rambam's position because superficially this makes no sense at all. So you're telling me that if the Jewish people are under attack, without a melech, we don't have the right? <laughs> Milchemes mitzvah is to defend ourselves. So you're telling me the Rambam says, oh, Milchemes mitzvah can only be done if there's a melech. So what does that mean? We're supposed to let, let Hamas kill us? I mean, what, what does it mean to say you can't wage a Milchemes mitzvah without a melech and you're not accepting the government as, as in place of the melech, what on earth does that even mean? So here, there's a real, real, real important idea that you have to get across. And that is, there is something called war, milchama, and there's a halacha of war, a law of war. But then there's a whole other set of halachas that deal with what you might call individual self-protection. Now, there is a mitzvah in the Torah, forget about melech, forget about war, that when a Jew is in peril, there's a mitzvah on every other Jew to try to rescue them from their dangers. This is the famous mitzvah in Vayikra Perak Yutes, Lo Samod Al Dam Reyecha. Do not stand by idly over your friend's blood. By the way, this is a very, very important idea of, of Jewish ethics generally. You know, under secular law, there is no duty to come to the assistance of somebody in trouble. Meaning, imagine this hypothetical. Imagine that, you know, you're, a, you're an Olympic swimmer. You won, you know, 10 gold medals for swimming. And you're walking by a little bridge and uh, a four-year-old fell over and is drowning in the water. And you could very easily, at no risk to yourself whatsoever, jump in and save the kid. But you're going to be late for a photo session. They're giving, you know, they're going to give you photographs and everything else. So you let, the kid, you let the kid drown. So what is your liability under secular law? Can you, are you, can you go to jail for that? The answer is no. There is literally no duty to come to the aid of another person. And lehepach, by the way, if you try to help the person and God forbid something went wrong, you could be in a lot of trouble. That's why uh, doctors will sometimes, historically would not stop if they're driving and there's an accident, they don't want to get involved. So some states passed what are called Good Samaritan laws, which means if you rendered assistance, you won't be responsible. But even that only says you're not in trouble if you help somebody. But that does not create an obligation. So it's very, under, it's very important to understand 
that under, let's say, Anglo-American law, your only responsibility is not to hurt other people. You have no responsibility to help them. And that's why we have all of these scenarios of uh, women that are being raped in parking lots and nobody calls 911. I mean, again, some of the stories are not totally true, but uh, this is kind of the folklore that uh, people just let, let people die, etc. Jewish law rejects that legamri. Jewish law says... Not only are you not allowed to kill and not allowed to steal, do not stand by idly over somebody's blood. And that refers to everything. I mean, if you can save their life, you save their life. If you can save their money, save their money. That's even the heter for Lashon Harif. Someone is going to get married. Someone is engaged to someone that you know is an abuser or whatever it is even though normally it's lush and hard to say bad things about somebody, but if you're doing it to protect an innocent victim, not only is it not lush and hara, it's a mitzvah, it's an obligation. It would be a sin not to disclose it. Now, this is very delicate because sometimes you only have rumors. Right? So it's a, it's, it, that, that, the particular case I just brought up happens to be a difficult question in halacha when you don't know for sure. But just to keep it simple, if I know for sure... I am obligated to reveal that information. So, here is the point that you need to understand, and this is the subtlety. The obligation to protect other Jews exists even without the category of the law of war. I don't need the law of war to create the chiv to defend the Jewish people. That chiyuv exists under lo sa'amod al dam And not only is there a chiyuv of lo sa'amod al dam but there's even a heter to kill the enemy that's trying to kill me. And that comes from another principle that's called the principle of rodef. What is the principle of rodef? Rodef means a pursuer. If somebody is trying to kill me or kill another person. And I cannot stop them in any other way. The halacha says there's a mitzvah on me to kill them. Right? The Talmud says somebody is coming to kill you. Kill him first. And it's not just you. If, if someone is coming to kill another person. So, there is the law of war and there is the law of lo samod al dam reyecha coupled with the law of rodef that will allow me to do the same thing. Fight the enemy and even kill the enemy. So, the question, again, this is a little subtle. I hope you're following me. The question is this. What is the point of the Rambam saying that we can't fight a Mohammed's mitzvah without a melech if I can do the same thing under the law of Lo Tamad al and Rodef? So today I don't have a melech. So today we will not call this war a mitzvah war. Because, oh, mitzvah war has to be authorized by a king. 
But so what? We can do the same thing by another name. We're fighting Hamas because Hamas, I wrote for him, they want to kill us. So we can kill them. In other words, is this just semantics? Meaning you're, you're leaving one box and you're going into another box. Meaning what is the analytical halachic significance? Whether something is a war or something is the din of rodef, losamod and rodef. So it's very, very, very important to understand. But does it matter if the, the government can replace that if a king that's like the first layer anyway? I'm sorry, say again? I'm saying that does it matter that that question that you posed is it irrelevant because if the government or judge is in place at the middle Oh, yes, 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 yes. You're 100% correct. I mean, if you follow the Ramban's position that the government has the role of king, then you're right, it can wage war. Mm-hmm. But I'm asking according to the Rambam, Maimonides. Ah, okay. Like Maimonides, the government is not king. Mm-hmm. So if that's so, this is not a Muhammad mitzvah. But I'm asking, so what? In other words, what's the difference? So, so it's not a Muhammad mitzvah, but it's still the law of Rodef. Meaning, it's just semantics at this point. Meaning, what is the significance of this not being a war? Ah, right. So there are a few things to keep in mind. First of all, like this. Let's talk about Lotama al-Damrayacha in the absence of a war. Let's assume you simply have a criminal. There's no war, it's just a criminal. Now, I do have an obligation to save a person in danger. But do I have an obligation to save a person in danger when I'm risking my own life? I mean, let's imagine you simply have this. There's a robber who has somebody at gunpoint. And I'm walking by. And I might be able to tackle the robber or disable the robber. I might be able to do that. But I might get myself killed. Halachically, halachically. Again, this is not war. I'm talking about if it's not war. Halachically, am I obligated to try to rescue a person if I'm putting my own life in danger? So the halacha is no. Because the same way when your life is threatened, you don't keep Shabbos, you don't keep kosher, you're not obligated. Again, if you want to do so, it might be a, 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 a great thing. It's an act of heroism. But you are not obligated to put your life at risk in order to save another person because lo tamad al-dam yields for pikuach nefesh. Just like many commandments yield for pikuach nefesh. Masha'enkei. If something is halachically classified as milchama, the Minchas Chinuch makes the very, very a strong argument that when the Torah mandates war, you can't get out of it because of pikuach nefesh. That's all war is pikuach nefesh. What about your children? What about what? Well, well, listen. I, most parents would be willing to do it, but halakhically they're not. Halakhically they're not. Obli- they're not. They're not obligated. They're not obligated. I'm, I'm not saying they're not allowed to, but they're not obligated. Which would mean like this: if something is a war, people can be forced. People can be forcibly conscripted. There can be a draft. 
Because even though they're putting their lives at risk, when there's a milchama, the Torah has suspended pikuach nefesh as a consideration. If something is not a war, you can volunteer to try to rescue people at risk to yourselves, but it wouldn't be an obligation, which means there's a tremendous difference, meaning if you, if something is not halachically a war, then the only type of army halacha would allow you to have would be an all-volunteer army where people are volunteering to put themselves at risk. So not only would the Torah student be exempt, anybody would be exempt. You'd have to have a system like the United States, right, the United States right now. I mean, I remember when there was a draft. Uh, you know, I, I, was, I remember in Vietnam, and of course, World War II, there was a draft. Um, and even then, by the way, even then, when the United States had a draft, rabbinical students were exempt from the army. I, mean, I, I remember my draft card uh, and the like. Uh, World War II, World War II, which was uh, more serious than Vietnam, rabbinical students were exempt. Uh, <coughs> but the United States then moved to an all-volunteer army. So the point I'm making is, since combat duty, at least, is dangerous to life, and the chiyav of lo tamod al dam reyacha and rodev does not apply to self-endangerment, that would actually mean, from a halachic standpoint, uh, if something does not have the status of milchama, it is only defense, rodef, then it would have to be an all-volunteer army and compulsory draft would not be allowed. Masha'en came if we follow Ramban's idea that a modern government has the status of melech and therefore they can trigger the laws of milchama, at that point, a compulsory endangerment would be allowed, subject to the exemptions, and we discussed the Torah exemption, the women's exemption, and the like. So this is not semantics, meaning the point I'm making is, maybe an obvious point, when the Rambam seems to say, without a melech, you can't wage milchama, he doesn't mean you can't defend yourself, but he means it wouldn't be via the law of war, it would be via the law of rodef, and the law of Rodave has a certain limitation that you can decline if it's going to be self-endangerment to you. Okay, so, which means, according to the Rambam, it is arguable that the only way Hamas could be fought halachically is by the utilization of an all-volunteer army and not a compulsory draft. Masha'en Kane, according to Ramban, that seems to say that the government has the authority of Melech. As a result, this becomes Milchemes Mitzvah. And by becoming Milchemes Mitzvah, there can be a compulsory draft subject to the exemptions that we talked about, which may or may not exist, but at least theoretically, they might exist. Now, there's a second issue here as well, and this is another major issue of tremendous importance, and that is the issue of collateral damage. You know, the major issue that Israel is facing in this struggle is that in the course of bombing and even the ground troops and the tanks in Gaza, trying to uproot Hamas, that is, hiding in those tunnels, and the tunnels are under hospitals and under schools and under apartment buildings and everything else. So by definition, in order to kill Hamas, uh, there are going to be a lot of people, civilians, so to speak, non-combatants, children, who are going to be killed. 
Uh, and the question is, well, are we allowed, so to speak, to kill the children in order to kill Hamas? And of course, keep in mind that the children or the non-combatants, uh, not all, it may not only be Palestinians, it may even be Jewish, Jewish people, right? So the euphemism, the euphemistic term that is used for this is collateral damage. Collateral damage, right? right where, because again, Israel has made the point over and over again that they're not trying to kill the civilians. Now, in this connection, let me just remind you of Ramban, who said an important rule that I think Ramban might agree with, that when we attack a city to defend ourselves, we attack the aggressor, we are supposed to give the non-combatants an avenue of escape. You don't surround the city on all four sides. You leave one side open so that the enemy would retreat, meaning those who are not interested in fighting you. This is Rambam, Nachmanides. Now, this does seem to indicate that before you destroy the enemy, you have to give those who want to leave a chance to leave. According to Ramban, this is a Torah requirement. Giving the people who don't want to fight, give them an avenue of escape. Now, this is what Israel did. Not because of the halacha, but it happens to me they were keeping the halacha. Um, they gave people two weeks or more of warning. They did it by leaflets dropped from the sky, and they did it by text messaging they, and then phone calls. They literally called everybody's cell and said, "Get out of here." They gave them two weeks. Now, did Israel adequately? fulfill their responsibility, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to judge because uh, on one level, uh, you know, the, you, had, you had two million people, uh, they couldn't, you know, they couldn't get out, the roads were blocked, they were afraid of, of bombing and uh, whatever, but at least in theory they were given the opportunity. But a lot of them didn't, so, you know, some left, some left, a lot of them didn't leave. And now Israel's bombing and every day we hear, oh, oh, first of all, the numbers, by the way, Palestinians, Hamas wildly exaggerates numbers. For some reason, I guess the government has a reason, uh, the Israeli government is very, being very, very secretive about what's going on. Uh, but the, just realize that the huge, the huge numbers that Hamas says have been killed are very, very likely exaggerated numbers. And for some reason, Israel is not contesting him at this particular point, maybe because they want to scare the civilians to try to still leave if they can. But don't trust the numbers. I mean, the numbers can be wildly exaggerated. But be it as it may, there is no doubt that if people didn't leave after they were given two weeks of notice and they're there, they're going to get killed in all of this bombing. So does halacha allow the killing of civilians in order to root out the enemy? So... Here is the thing. This, too, is going to be a very big difference between war and not war. If it is a milchemes mitzvah, in other words, authorized by the proper channels, then as long as we gave the non-combatants the ability to leave, and they didn't, we can do whatever we can to root out 
the enemy. Right? Once we fight a war, there's collateral damage. That's going to happen automatically. It's regrettable. And, and again, I mean, it's, it's sad, it's tragic. In fact, I have to say, maybe I'll get hate mail for this, but, um, you know, there's a story now about uh, uh, Kamala Harris's um, stepdaughter, mm-hmm. the, uh, her husband's daughter from her first marriage. Mm-hmm. She happens to be not Jewish because the, the, the Jewish husband married a guy the first time and the second time. Uh, so, Baruch Hashem, she's not Jewish, but she's raising an $8 million campaign to help the children of Gaza. Right? She's fun, you know, and without, men- without mentioning uh, anything about what Hamas did uh, to Israelis. So that's a tremendous embarrassment because, you know, the Biden administration is, in fact, you know, I'm very, very surprised, pleasantly in a sense, that the Secretary of State, uh, this guy Blinken, uh, met with Arabs over the weekend. And all the Arab nations said there has to be an immediate ceasefire, this can't go on. And Blinken said it is the United States position that Israel should not agree to a ceasefire at this point because that would give Hamas the chance to rebuild itself. This is quite, quite surprising in a, in a pleasant way, in an unusual way. But he took the position. He said, he said, he said to the Arab nations, no, not, it's not the time for a ceasefire yet. Okay. Uh, but anyway, but she's raised, so it's a tremendous embarrassment. But, uh, but I'll tell you the truth, and this is where I'm, I'm being a little controversial. You know, I'm okay with helping the children, getting them homes, getting them education, getting them food. They are victims, and it's sad. And the big diff- one of the big differences between our side and their side is we have sadness that children, their children are getting killed and, and, and they don't have food, and they don't have medicine, they don't have education. It is sad to us. It's a tragedy to us. And they don't feel that way, not about our kids for sure, and not about their kids as well. So that's a big difference. So we do what we have to do. It's important to understand this. We, if it's a milchama, we can destroy the enemy even if other people are going to be affected and even if there would be Jews, even if there would be Jews. God forbid, God forbid, God forbid. But if we had to root out Hamas and as a result some hostages were to be killed, you know, God forbid it should never happen. Halacha would say that's the right thing to do. Because Hamas cannot protect itself by human shields, whether they're their human shields or our human shields. But, but, but keep in mind that that's only true. The collateral damage idea is only true if it has the halachic status of a milchama. In other words, if it's simply the law of rodef, you're only allowed to kill the rodef, you cannot kill the innocent person to get at the rodef. So, let me give you an example. So, so it's not semantic, meaning to say whether something is a milchama or something is simply rodef is not just a semantic label. There are some practical differences in how this works. So let me give you an example uh, from another tragedy uh, a number of years already, 9-11, right? Uh, September 11th, what was it, 2001, okay? The World Trade Center. So let's imagine the following question. You have a plane. I'm making up. I don't have the exact numbers here. Let's say you have a plane that is headed towards the World Trade Center. And the plane has 200 passengers on it, 
who are innocent people, and it has whatever it is, five terrorists. And this plane is going to hit the World Trade Center, and it is estimated, let us say, that 5,000 people are going to die. So let's ask the question, are we allowed to shoot down a suicide plane and kill 200 innocent people? Now again, if the only people on the plane were the terrorists, that's Pasha, that's obvious. That's a Rodev. Of course we can kill the terrorist so the terrorist won't uh, kill other people. That, that's, not, that's, that's obvious. But the question is, can we kill 200 innocent people in order to save 5,000 people? Ah, okay. So this is an interesting question. Uh, some of you might have had in college or in your own studies a whole si- branch of right, a whole branch of moral philosophy yeah. that is called trolley problems. Uh, the reason it was trolley because it was developed by uh, an English professor of philosophy, a woman in Cambridge. Her name was Dr. Philippa Foote, F-O-O-T-E. Uh, a little bit of trivia. Uh, Philippa Foote was actually uh, the American-born daughter of Grover Cleveland, who was uh, President of the United States, and uh, Grover Cleveland has the only distinction so far of being elected twice in non-consecutive terms. Uh, if Trump manages to survive jail, maybe Trump might be the next, <laughs> the next person who does it in non-consecutive terms. But uh, Philippa Foote married a, a British guy, and uh, she was an academic. She became a very esteemed professor of philosophy in Cambridge. And she developed a whole series of problems, hypothetical problems, dealing with trolleys, trains. You know, that, that was her thing. So let's take a few trolley cases just to illustrate this. So case number one is I'm driving a trolley. And all of a sudden, the brakes fail. The brakes don't work. I can't stop. And there are five children in front of the train, and they can't get out of the way. So if I do nothing, I'm going to run them over. But I can turn the train onto a sidetrack, and it'll stop eventually, and nobody's going to get hurt. But lo and behold, on the sidetrack, which is unused, a worker fell asleep. He figured the tra- no trains go there. Pretty stupid, but he just decided to take a nap on the track. So. If I divert the train, I'm going to kill one person. Uh, If I don't divert the train, I'm going to kill five people. So is it permissible for me, or is it obligated for me, to divert the train to kill one in order to save five? Now, now she she discusses it. I'm sorry, say again? There are typically like two schools of thought, like libertarianism and Right, 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 right. So, so some people from a, now she she analyzes it from a uh, secular standpoint, not 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 a Jewish. She's not Jewish, so she says, you know, utilitarianism always talks about you do the greatest good for the greatest number of people, and since five lives are better than one life, so uh, it's it's worthwhile to kill one guy in order to save five people. Uh, but if we ask ourselves halakhically, am I allowed to kill one person to save five, the halakha is very clear you cannot. Because the halakha is 
that uh, you cannot kill one person to save another, and you cannot kill one person to save a hundred people, unless they're a rodef, meaning if they're directly threatening me, I can kill the rodef. But an innocent guy who fell asleep on the track, I would not be able to. Right? So in such a situation, I can't kill one to save five. That's very clear halakhically. Although, well, actually, you'll see in a moment, it may not be so clear, but the, the simple, simple halakhic rule is that uh, numbers don't matter because every life is of infinite value. And if something is infinite, five times infinity is still infinity. Ten times infinity is infinity. A hundred times infinity is infinity. Now, so here's my question to you. If I'm not allowed to divert the train and kill one to save five, would I be allowed to shoot down the suicide plane and thereby kill 200 and save 5,000. In other words, is it the same thing? Meaning, meaning, is shooting down the suicide plane the same problem as diverting the trolley? See, in both cases, what you're essentially doing is you're trying to make a utilitarian calculus. I will kill fewer people in order to save more people. I would say no. Uh, yeah. Because I think a suicide plane, the people on the plane are in danger as well, whereas in the trolley, people on the trolley are not in danger. Yeah. So, Baruch Hashem, so uh, you, uh, you uh, have the same thinking as Rashi, so you have a very good, uh, very good precedent. Uh, Rashi does, the, I mean, he doesn't talk about suicide directly, but, but Rashi makes the following point. Rashi says it's true that you cannot kill one person to save five people. But if that one person is going to die either way, in other words, in the case of the train, if I kill the five kids, the guy on the side is going to live. His death is not inevitable. So I don't have the right to kill him to save five kids. But in the case of the suicide, I'm not making a choice between 5,000 and 200. I'm making a choice between 5,200 and 200. Meaning, the 200 on the plane, yeah, you never know, a miracle might happen, but it's extremely unlikely that they're going to survive a crash into the World Trade Center. So as a result, Rashi says that when the people you're shooting down are going to die anyway, then you can shoot them down in order to save a larger number. See the difference? That's very important. Meaning, in the trolley situation, you would not be allowed to kill the man to save the five or even save the hundred because that man lives until you make a decision to kill him. No, 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 no. Okay, remember, I'm talking about if it's not Muhammad now. This is a bigger... No, no, no. So let me explain this. In milchama, okay, okay. Again, I, I want to be very clear. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to illustrate, maybe in a long, long way, the differences between the laws of milchama and the laws of rodef. Uh, meaning, meaning, trolley issues are relevant only in the law of rodef. Meaning, in the laws of milchama, you achieve victory, even if that means some people are going to be killed. Yes, that's correct. That's correct. Meaning to say we'd have a problem. 
Exactly right. Yeah, now I see your point now. Yeah, that's exactly correct. Meaning to say that under the law of Rodaif, if this would not have the status of a war, we would not necessarily be able to bomb and kill the hostages in order to achieve victory because the hostages' death is not inevitable. What if you don't know where they are? Uh, well, I'm saying it's kind of like a trolley situation, meaning I'm bombing Hamas because Hamas will kill all sorts of Jews. Yeah, but when I'm doing that, I'm doing that through killing, killing uh, hostages, at least Jewish hostages. And in other words, the Hamas bombing is actually similar to some degree to the trolley case. It's not similar to the suicide bombing case. It's actually similar to the trolley case. And therefore, if it's a milchama, it can be done. But if it's not a milchama, it can So the point I'm making is that we certainly have the right to defend ourselves. There's no question about it. But there's a big, huge difference. Is it because of milchama or is it because of rodeh? If it's because of milchama, the army would have to be volunteer. It could not be compelled. And if it's because of milchama, we would have a big problem with collateral damage. Uh, beyond the actual combatants, so how would we fight them? Uh, but it, I'm sorry, if it, I'm sorry, if it's mil, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm with that. If it's milchama, we can have a draft, and we don't have to be concerned with collateral casualties. Uh, if it's not milchama, the army would have to be volunteer, and we would have to be concerned with not getting the innocent, the innocent victims. Well, as I say, m- most of the psukim that I've seen have actually said this is a Muhammad mitzvah, and therefore we apply the laws of war. Uh, but, uh, but again, it's, and, and this fits Ramban, who says that a government has the status of melech, uh, but it's very hard to fit it in the Rambam's view. So perhaps they're, they're apparently poskining like Ramban on this, on this, critical, on this critical issue. By the way, uh, let's go back to the first trolley case, which is another line of reasoning. The Chazenish, well, okay. Let me go back to Rashi for a moment. Let's go back to Rashi. Rashi allows you to shoot down, Rashi in Sanhedrin, allows you to shoot down the suicide plane because it's not like the trolley case, because the 200 on the plane are gonna die anyway. Now, let me change it, tweak this a little bit. When you shoot down a plane and it explodes in the sky, pieces of the plane are going to land somewhere. And when those pieces land, they could land on somebody's head, somebody's car. Now, you see the difference there. If the only people who are going to die when you shoot down the plane are the 200 people on the plane and the terrorists, so then you can make the argument, hey, if I wouldn't shoot down the plane, these 200 people are going to die anyway, so I could kill them in order to save 5,000 more people. That's Rashi's argument. But what if, as a result of your shooting down the plane, somebody else is going to die? Includes what? Includes what? We also include assumption into that, or we know for a fact. I'm sorry, we include. I didn't get the word you said. Assumption into that, or yeah. we know for a fact. Well, l- let's assume that we know for a fact. You know, you, you don't really know. That's part of the complication. <laughs> no, but like, that's what I'm saying. Like, if we like, we can assume that even if like 
even if we know for sure that they're gonna die, but somehow maybe like this the one person, you know what I mean? Like we can assume that that is not gonna be a collateral Collateral damage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Oh, okay. So, so again, if we knew, if we knew, for example, we were going to shoot the plane down into the ocean, so then we then we would go with Rashi. Then we have Rashi's argument that the two hundred are going to die either way. But if we're going to shoot the plane over a populated area, it's almost certain that you know, somebody's going to a plane. You know, it's not like a tiny little thing. Uh, someone's going to get killed. So. It would appear like this. It would appear that that makes the suicide plan like the trolley case. Meaning, even if you're going to save, see, even if you're going to save five thousand people, you can't kill one innocent person to save five thousand people. How far do you go for that? What about the whole world? I mean, what if it's an atom bomb? <laughs> what if it's? Um, no, yeah, I'm asking. Like, with the trolley problem, you could yeah. argue that hitting someone. Well, in the way, could it cause an explosion? I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. You know, I don't know. I mean, it, it's one would. It seems logical that at some point numbers should matter. Meaning, I mean, I can't kill one person to save a million people, ten million people, six billion people. Well, you said uh, infinity, so. Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, halacha doesn't seem to make a difference with numbers. Although at some point it gets a little, crazy. little crazy. Yeah. But halacha seems to say infinity is infinite, right? like you're saying. So it turns out like this. It turns out, now again, again, please be sure you don't misunderstand me. I'm talking about if it's not a milchama. If it's a milchama, we don't have to make these calculations. If it's not a milchama, then I can shoot down the plane for the people who are going to die anyway. I wouldn't be able to shoot down the plane for the people who, if, if people who wouldn't die will wind up dying because of it. Now, I do want to introduce, however, a counter-argument of the Chazonish. Now, I've mentioned the Chazonish a number of times today already. Uh, the Chazonish, his name was, a oh, little biography is helpful, his name was Ravram Yeshayahu Karelitz. Uh, he uh, died, I think, in 1954 or 55. Uh, he was born in Lithuania, but he came to Eretz Israel in his 50s, and he became the leader of non-Hasidic uh, uh, religious Jews, but many, you know, all Hasidim very much respected him as well. And uh, I had mentioned him in connection with the drafting of, daughter, of women, where he considered that to be, you got to give your life before you go into the army. Uh, but he wrote on all subjects, and this is a totally unrelated subject, but uh, he says the following. The Chazanish says, it's true that you're not allowed to kill one person to save other people. That's very true. But when you divert, his case was you're diverting a missile. Let's assume a missile is coming. Let's say Iron Dome might be an example. You have a missile coming towards you, and we have a way of deflecting the missile, but the missile may, instead of hitting a city, it may kill one person in the countryside. Exactly like the suicide plane that will break up and a piece will kill somebody. The Chazanish says that is not called an act of murder. That is simply an act of deflection. As he basically said, if what you're doing is not directly killing, you are simply deflecting the thing that's going to kill you, and it has an incidental effect 
of killing somebody, that is not called an act of murder. So you can't murder to save another person. But if your action could be, could be described as a deflection of the danger. So according to the Chazanish, even in the pure trolley case, I could divert the trolley away from the five because I'm not doing so to kill the guy on the track. I'm doing so to remove the threat from the five. And that would also apply to the suicide plane. I'm not doing it to kill the 200. Well, I'm, well, the 200, well, I'm sorry, the 200 I could kill anyway, but I'm not doing it to kill the guy on the ground. Right? That's kind of, it's mamish like diverting it. So that's a big chiddish. A lot of people disagree with the Chazanish's analysis, but he would differentiate. He would say, for example, when the, when, when the Goyim surround a city and they say, give us a Jew that we can kill or we will kill you all, we are not allowed to deliver a Jew to be killed. But that's because the specific thing they're asking for is the murder of the Jew. But where all you're doing is deflecting the missile. In other words, I think the test is, it's a subtle distinction, but I think the test... Bombing Gaza considering a direct kill? Is what? Bombing Gaza. So, this is where I'm not, and I'm honestly not sure. I can look at it two ways. You could say, you could say that bombing is directly killing, and therefore if you're killing innocent people, you can't, unless it's a war, unless it's a war, unless it's a war. If it's not a milchama, you can't, kill directly to save lives or you can say no, our targets are Hamas and we're kind of deflecting Hamas so to speak, uh, through killing them and you know uh, there's collateral damage but, but you're correct, to apply the Chazanish to that situation is not at all very clear, it's, it's very very subtle uh, but I think one might argue that the Chazanish might be permitted but again just to be sure people are following, my, my, my uh, points today are, are a bit uh, more, more subtle maybe or difficult than usual. Uh, I had really one purpose today. Uh, the one purpose is to show you that there are two halachic paths to defensive combat. There is a halachic path based on the laws of milchama, milchames mitzvah, and there's a halachic path based on the laws of Losam Adaldam Reyecha and Rodev. Now the path of Milchemes Mitzvah is open according to Ramban because the Ramban takes the position that government has the prerogatives of Melech. Once it is Milchemes Mitzvah, that gives the government the ability to have a mandatory compulsory draft and to not be concerned with collateral damage if necessary for the military objective, as long as we gave the non-combatants an avenue of escape. However, according to Rambam, it may be that we don't have the law of Milchemes Mitzvah here because we need Melech for Milchemes Mitzvah and the Rambam does not seem to accept government as equal to Melech so according to the Rambam, the legitimacy of defense is based on the laws of Losamod al-Dam and um, Rodef. 
So number one, that could not compel anybody to endanger themselves, so you'd have to have an all-volunteer army. And number two, once you're dealing with Rodef, you run into trolley problems that we can't necessarily endanger innocent people in order to save other, other people, unless their death is inevitable. And even the hostages, Baruch Hashem, their deaths are not, are very far from inevitable. By the way, did you see, you know, the, um, the uh, woman who was freed, the soldier that was freed, uh, the whole fascinating story. How did she get freed? There are people, uh, there are insiders in Hamas that are giving Israeli uh, information. I mean, Mamish, uh, they're putting their lives in danger so much. Uh, but uh, the mother, they were not a religious family, but the mother separated Chala, did you see this? And she made a bracha and she prayed to Hashem and she cried and she said she loved Hashem. And uh, another woman in the Knesset made a phenomenal, in the Knesset, wow, a phenomenal speech how this shows you what Amuna is, this shows you what a Jew really is, this shows you, you know, and she was just talking about uh, this woman is the hero because she loves Hashem when her own daughter is held in captivity. And she said this is, should inspire every, every Jewish person. So I tell you, uh, when you talk about Mashiach coming, when, when they start saying Divrei Torah in the Knesset, <laughs> <laughs> That's how you <laughs> then, then for sure Mashiach is coming, yeah. Um, so it seems like we've, we're mixing Malcolm and Motive laws and what's happening. Well, what I'm saying is, we have two pa- we have two yeah, pathways. Sure, but it seems like we're diving, we're delving into both. We're acting. In I'm both del- well. Both. The reason the reason why I'm delving into both is because according to Ramban, we are proceeding on the Milchama road. No, I'm saying what yeah. we're doing right now. The oh, well, we're now. They have their feet in both pools, right? What are the implications of us not having one specific path? Or well, well, I I, 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 may, I may not agree with that. I, I think that primarily we're going the Milchama route, but we try to be as compassionate as we can. Because remember, even in the Milchama route, we have to give them an avenue of escape yeah. for people. So I think the predominant philosophy of the uh, IDF, I mean, to the extent they're following halacha, mm-hmm. is that they're treating this as Milchama. And that's the justification for the bombing. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. It is complex, so it seems like, like the third route is to actually combine the two. Well, on the other hand, you know, you can't fully combine it because, to some degree, they're mutually exclusive. Meaning, (laughs) if I went with the Rode fruit, I might not be able to do collateral damage at all, and I would be stymied. Um, So I think overall, overwhelmingly, we're going with Milchama, but we're trying to be humane. And listen, I, I heard an Israeli colonel said that when he sees the devastation in Gaza, you know, his heart breaks, his heart breaks. But, and, uh, but he says, you know, they were given two weeks to leave. We begged them to leave. Now, we're not saying, he said this point, we're not saying because they didn't leave, they deserve to die. They don't deserve to die. We're not targeting them. But, but they didn't leave. And we have, to, we have to kill the people who do deserve to die. And they are in the way. And they could have left. You know, it's 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 it, it's tragic. It's it's nothing to be happy about. What about what happened yesterday? What, what happened yesterday? Whatever day it was, where they were able to leave them. Yeah. And then Hamas. What happened? What happened? Hamas ended up killing them. Yeah. Well, that's right. That that's uh, yeah, that's Hamas, right? So we and tried. We tried. We tried. So well, well, well it's, not on us. it's not on us. It's not on us. I mean, I mean, this is the issue. The issue is that. Uh, I mean, Hamas doesn't care. Hamas right now 
is diverting food and fuel to, the, to their terrorist operation. I mean, food and fuel is coming in, a little bit is coming into Gaza. And they're stealing it to, to keep their, their tunnel construction going or whatever it is. Right now they're diverting it. Yeah. Um, so when we're in a situation like this, just practically in the war room, are there uh, a, a panel of rabbis that sit there and say, okay, no, no, wait, before you push that button, Ramban says this, Ramban says this, we've got to do this, and then you can, like, how, how is it, because then you have okay, the government, so, like, Halakhically, how is that all? So, so, so the truth of the matter is, I mean, listen, in an ideal world, you would have rabbis who would express opinions. Uh, in the real world, you know, Israel is not a, a, a religious state per se. However, there are ministers who at least are, you know, Shomer Shabbat, and they're sensitive to these issues. So I don't think they call rabbis, but they will, uh, you know... Let me put it this way. The IDF is concerned with ethics generally, and a lot of the ethics are based on Jewish tradition. It may not go into the detail that we've gone through, but as an ethical army, the IDF is one of the most ethical uh, in the world. And they have a very, very high standard of ethics. At the same time, the um, exchange that happened, like one of the massive exchanges that happened that actually traded one of the terrorists, like terrorists, back to, you know, yep. back to Gaza, one of like, for a one soldier, every, like, uh, like the establishment generally, the rabbinical establishment was not to do it. That's correct. Too much right, right. Yeah, that'll be that'll. That's correct. That'll be next week's topic. I was going to do it today, but uh, we're almost out of time. Yeah, that, that's really going to be our maybe our final topic. Uh, very important. Again, the two major issues uh, is collateral damage to civilians and innocent people, and the second issue is the hostage exchange. Uh, that's going to be a, that is going to be a very big issue. It's been an issue in Israel in the past in which uh, Hamas says, we'll release all the hostages if you release all of the our people yeah. that you have in prison. By the way, there, there are... Right, hostage, right. There are 5,000 convicted terrorists in Israeli prisons. Hamas says, we'll give you 200. You'll give us 5,000. And that'll, that'll be fine. Now, uh, if that, yeah. Allowed to not do that. So again, we're going to we're going to give a whole class on this. This is a big, big halakhic issue. You see the problem. The problem basically is, on one hand, there's a mitzvah to try to save lives. On the other hand, by releasing terrorists, you are endangering an indefinite number of lives in the future. So the question is, are you allowed in the interest? Are you obligated to save the immediate lives if you're exposing the population? to long-term danger. Now, you remember Gilad Shalit. Gilad Shalit, mm-hmm. uh, he was in captivity for what, more than five years, really long, long time. And uh, Israel finally, I'm sorry, uh, the, uh, the uh, terrorists finally released him in exchange for 1,000. Israel released 1,000 terrorists. Wow. Now, on one hand, here's the thing. On one hand, from an emotional level, I'm tremendously proud that we have such a reverence for life and such a respect for life. Life is infinite, so we will release a thousand people to get one person back. On the other hand, some of the leaders, some of the leaders of what happened October 7th were released in that prisoner exchange. So in effect, I mean, I hate to say this, I don't want Gilad Shalit to feel bad. I mean, we're happy he's, he's here. But in a sense... Uh, his freedom was secured at the cost of 1,400 lives. I mean, uh, maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit, but 
There is a connection there. So this is an excruciating dilemma. You know, just like people say, I'm in favor of, you know, apple pie and baseball. You know, I'm, sure, I'm in favor of saving lives. Everybody's in favor of saving lives. That, that's not the issue. But the issue here is you're saving lives in a way that will be endangering lives, and the lives you may be endangering may be a lot more than the lives that you're trying to save right now. And it's like there is too high of a price for that. Like, there, is, like, there, there are a lot here that are having many, many attacks that, like, this is like, it's very relative, but still there's a too high a price that you can yeah, not yeah. afford that. So here we happen, to have, we happen to have a very, very extensive halachic literature on this that goes all the way back to the time of the Gemara. So, so we will talk about that next week. One final point I want to share with you, though, an inter- very interesting um, commentary about collateral damage. And this is from um, Divrei Hayamim, from the Book of Chronicles. If you remember the very famous story that David HaMelech wanted to build the Beis HaMikdash. David HaMelech very much wanted to build the Beis HaMikdash. But Nasan Hanavi, Shmuel is not alive anymore, so Nasan is the main Navi. Nasan Hanavi communicates to David that Hashem is not letting you build the Beis HaMikdash because you have fought many wars and you have spilt much blood and the Beis HaMikdash can be built only by a man of peace and your son Shlomo will be a man who will not have to fight wars and he will build the Beis HaMikdash. So what David HaMelech did was, he did not merit to build the Beis HaMikdash, but he gathered all the gold and the silver, he gathered all the materials for the Beis HaMikdash. So there's a commentary, one of the great commentaries on uh, Tanakh was the Radak. Radak is Rav David Kimchi. He was in the time of Ramban and the like, and uh, he explains that, what do you mean? Every war that David fought was a mitzvah war, wars against enemies. So the Radak says, Hashem is not criticizing David for the bad guys that he killed, but he's saying that when you killed bad guys, you also killed good guys, collateral damage, and, and that's not a sin, the Radak says Beferish, that's not a sin, because you were doing it as part of the military effort, so David does not get punished for that, but it's, it's spiritually a defect a little bit, so you don't merit to build the base on Mikdash. So you see two things from the Radak in opposite directions. You see that if you're really going after the enemy, halacha permits the collateral damage, if it's a milchama. At the same time, you see that it's a bit spiritually injurious to you. So it's not a sin, but it's a pagam. It's kind of a little bit of a defect in the spiritual uh, nefesh, so you try to avoid it. This is what you see from the, from the Red Deck. Okay, so Mr. Hashem, uh, next week we'll, we'll talk about the last uh, issue, and that is the prisoner release and the prisoner's exchange. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.